Hello, everyone. My um, hot church memory is um, we were in St. Andrews, yeah, Scotland, and we'd been spent a week at a conference, so seven days, and we, we ran the thing. So we were there from like 9 a.m. till 2 in the morning for seven days, six days, and then on their seventh day, they decided to have us work more, um, which just feeds into the ser sermon well. And they shoved us, we were gonna go out on a mission trip out to the rest of Scotland the next day, so they shoved us into the attic church in an old church in Scotland where there's no air conditioning and it was 110 degrees while we sat in hot pews and somebody spoke to me in a thick Scottish accent of which I could not make heads or tail of what they were saying. So it was like four hours of just mumbling while I tried to stay awake. And the guy next to me had found a little pair of porcelain praying hands and had worked them into his shirt and was doing this the whole time. So that's my uh, hot church memory. Um, Good to see all you guys. Good to be back up here. I have not been up here for a while, um, uh, ever since the tank entered our lives. Um, uh, Becca, uh, the preparation was a little bumpy. I hope the sermon goes smoother. Becca commented that the preparation seemed very smooth, and I told her that was just because it would seem hypocritical to be anxious about my work towards a sermon about being anxious about work. Uh, so I think I'm calmer than I uh, would normally have been. The topic of the sermon is redeeming work. That was what was given to me by Terry. Uh, flipping what we've been doing for a while, Terry did all the sermons for this and told me what I was going to preach on. Um, so I didn't get to give him the challenging parables. Instead, he gave me this topic. Uh, I th think, and just to open up with my credentials for this topic, I am... And not my theological credentials, but more to give some background of where I am to make sure we're on the same page. I am not employed by the church. Um, I do not get, I'm not part-time employed. I am not given any money by the church. I am fully employed in the regular workforce. I work for a publicly traded company. Um, my CEO's wife is, is sitting in here. Um, I have... Yeah, and I'm not. I'm also not working a partial job. This is not like some midway gig for my future dream of full-time ministry or acting or anything. I work a career path that I started. Yeah, you guys didn't know. Um, Excel is just a side gig. I've been we're doing what I've been doing for 15 years. I have climbed corporate ranks. Um, I have a team that reports to me of over 40 people in two continents. Um, that's not to impress you. For all you know, I'm terrible at it. Um, it's just to say, I when I speak of working, I'm speaking from the other side of the fence. I'm on the same side. I work full time, which is why I think Terry gave me this topic. We didn't didn't he didn't say. He just said, you're speaking on redeeming work. Um, but I know the challenges of a crazy CEO, and I'm not speaking of that one. I, other CEOs I've had that have been absolutely insane. I know difficult coworkers. I know the pressures of the modern work life. I know what it's like to try and maintain work-life balance when you have a device that literally makes you connected 24-7, and oftentimes there's expectations around that. I and preaching to myself. The preparation for this was actually really helpful for me, and I hope it's the same for you, because it was something that spoke to the challenges that I face on a consistent basis. That said, I didn't like the title. Um, I'm not mentioning this to pick an argument with Terry. I think he'd agree with everything I said. Redeeming work is actually a very popular sermon title for this topic of how we do work, but I think it 
And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I think the issues I have with it are instruction, instructionary. Offer a path that I'd like to take uh, in this. Now, the first is work definitely cannot be redeemed the same way a person can be redeemed. You can take all people can be redeemed. You can, if there was some global ranking scale of the most heavenly person ever down to the absolute bottom of humanity, this person can still be redeemed. They are not beyond redemption. They can still, without losing the identity of who they are as a fundamental person, be brought into a new life. The same cannot be said of the career of a mob hitman. There are certain careers that by the nature of what makes them up, because of the exploitive nature, because of what actually it entails to do the job, it cannot be redeemed. It simply has to cease. There is no redeemed pimping. It just doesn't exist. So whereas all people can be redeemed, work seems to sit in a different category in that work doesn't get redeemed the same way, which points to the second item. When we speak about redeeming work, we can, it can cause us to raise the bar a little higher than we would anticipate. Work was subjected to toil by the fall. Curse was placed upon it. We still bring forth work. Uh, we still can bring forth fruit from the ground, but now it's done by the sweat of our brow. It's hard work with pain. At the same time, childbirth also cursed with pain, which some people are intimately aware of. People will argue that, in, that Christ has come and brought about a position where we no longer face the toil of work. Without getting into the fullness of the argument against that, no one will argue that with a woman in labor, and then the curse came in the same motion. And we can, if we have an image of somehow reaching a point of toil-free work, we can set a bar too high, and you see people who bounce around careers because they're consistently seeking spots where work has no toil. They think toil is something that can be overcome in this age and that work can be found free of it, and I want to free you from that illusion, it will not happen. It can be reduced. I mean, thankfully, it can be reduced. I work in an air-conditioned office and not in 110 degree heat in a field. So there is some reduction that can happen through toil, but we cannot remove it entirely. And oftentimes the ways we try to remove toil entirely is exploitative. We just simply transfer the toil from ourselves onto other people. So I wanna say that's the same thing. First off, work does not seem to be redeemable in the same way as people. Secondly, in trying to remove the toil from work, we set our aims too high and we often uh, push to exploits. And third, and these two point to the fact that it gives the wrong focus. Work is not redeemed the way we do work is redeemed. It's not a question of how do we redeem work, it's a question of how do we, the redeemed, work. How should we be working as people who have been brought into a new kingdom? Our work comes with us as we are transferred from a kingdom of light into a kingdom of darkness. As we move from having resources based entirely in this world to having infinite eternal resources, our work comes with us. How do we work from this place? And that's the question I want to answer, look at, answer. The question I want to consider is how do we work as people who have been redeemed? How should our work be transformed? In doing that, I just want to consider four points. The first is, and we get a lot of anxiety from work. 
Uh, Terry's touched on that the past two weeks. Um, and so a lot of that does come from what Terry touched on very concretely last week, the questions around provision for work. Work is how we generally bring food to our table and put a roof over our heads. Those are supplying for fundamental human needs. So the fact that work provides those does make sense, that there is some anxiety that can come from work. And that anxiety can be increased if you move from supporting yourself to supporting your family. Back when I was single, losing my job would have been a headache. But I could have landed on somebody's sofa and um, surfed sofas indefinitely. I don't think there's a big enough sofa for the five moons. If you have it, let me know. So there's a different pressure that can come from this as we move into a family. And even if you're not the person who is doing the actual work, a paid work that brings money in to put the roof over the house and the food on the table, there can, there's still the work of raising children, which has its own anxieties because, yes, you might not go without food, but you could screw a life up pretty well. And that seems to bring anxiety from what I've picked up. These questions about what you do to help children make the decisions they need for their lives on a consistent moment-by-moment -moment basis. But even if you were to take away questions of provision, if you were to take away questions of whether or not we're going to be able to get our needs met, there would still be a ground for anxiety around work. Because we care for, about work more than simply what it brings to us in material terms. We care about the actual outcome of the work. Work is tied up in the the impact of our work and the fruit of our work and the fact that we get to work and that we see it bring forth labor is tied up into who we were, we are. We didn't invent work. God started this all working. The opening section of the Bible is God working. And we know this because on the seventh day, he rests from his work. That means the first six days are work. He doesn't place us in the garden with a command to just chill, relax, and enjoy it. It's cool. And then later on, once the fall happens, you're like, okay, now you guys got to go have babies and work. No, he puts people on earth with a mandate. He gives the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to go forth, to create more of these image bearers, to have children and raise them. And then he puts also to subdue and have dominion to take this garden and expand God's good order into the earth. And as we do that, to reflect the goodness of his rule. We reflect his image by making more image bearers. We reflect his image by taking and working his order onto this earth. It's put into who we are to go and do good work. It's why when I had two weeks off, I still did things that were fruitful for work. I cleaned our house a lot. And it's not just because it was messy, it's because there was joy in going in and bringing order to this. I wasn't caught up in the provisioning of it. I wasn't caught up in whether or not if I didn't clean our house, the roof was gonna collapse. It might have, but it wasn't the main concern. It was because there's a joy in actually going and doing good work. And that's the first point. We need to see that work is tied into God's purposes for us. 
Work is not an add-on to humanity. It's something that we were made to do. Something we were made to delight in doing. And we also then need to see, that means we need to work in accordance with God's purposes. It means the way we work should be shaped by what God wants for the earth. It means that if we are working again in an exploitive way, we are not working in accordance with how God wants us to be working. It also means that this is tied to that other command to be fruitful and multiply. And we need to take care that our flourishing in our work does not inhibit the flourishing of our family. This is something I need to remember, partially because I enjoy the work. I'm not anxious about losing my job. I like to see the work succeed. And I need to remember that I still need to take breaks. And even when I'm cleaning the house, take breaks and just get down and play blocks with my daughter. That if I'm working in a way that is prohibiting my family from flourishing, and I know there's seasons where things go out of whack, but if it is long-term stances that I work in a way that is prohibiting my family from flourishing, I need to make changes. The specifics of the changes are between you and God, but that is just a principle that stands. We need to work in a way that is holistically built into this calling we have to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue and have dominion. And we cannot sacrifice this for that. Any more that we can sacrifice this as much as my wife would like me to for this. She always says, the more I'm home, she's like, just, just quit your job. We'll coast out for a while. It's just so nice having you around. But we don't. It's that we live a life in balance between the two callings we have, and we need to make sure it stays in a right balance. We also, as people of a new covenant, have seen this mandate expanded. We don't simply go forth and multiply by having children. We also go forth and multiply through the new birth of conversion. As we spread God's word, as we announce the gospel, and we see people brought into the church, we see that multiplying. And we go forth and we teach the commandments of God. The Great Commission is in some ways a reworking of that mandate to go forth and make disciples of all the nation, to multiply, and to teach them to obey all that I've commanded, to bring that order. So we have this also in the church, and that means that we have an extended family. We have a family here, and we are, in the same way, we have a call to see that our family flourishes. We have a call to see that the church flourishes. I mean the big C Church, big C, which of which this is the local version you've been put into. This is not a call for more ministry groups or more activities. This is a call to the fact that we have a commitment to one another to see each other flourish. Terry often talks about how we need the church, and we do. We need the church. We need the support of the church to go out in this world and to flourish in the life Christ has called us to. But that picture, which is true, primarily views us as the children in the church who need the church the way my children need me. Rose needs me. She needs to stick close to me so that I can support her as she grows, which we all sit in that position to the church, but we also sit as parents within the church who are responsible for the flourishing of others. We have a responsibility to one another, a duty to one another to see one another flourish. And if our, if our jobs are prohibiting us from seeing one another flourish, we also need to consider whether or not changes need to be made. We have a responsibility. We cannot simply be absentee parents who think sending a check 
is fulfilling the call that God has placed on us to see one another flourish. So we have work that is done in accordance with God's design, something he has brought us to do. It means all that we go forth. When we go forth, one of the stories I love about the place I work, one of the stories that gets told consistently by John is about the guy who told him how this software we have made enabled him to go home and spend time with his family. It cut his 70 to 80 hour work week down to 40 and he could see his family. That's bringing God's good order to the earth. This idea that we are put on earth to work and bring God's order tears at this idea of a sacred and a secular, a split. But it puts all of the work we do under God's work, that we are going forth and bringing good order to this work, and it should shape the way that we do everything and what we're pursuing as we work. And though it is affected by the fall, though it comes forth now through toil, I mean, it's not a mistake it's not some random thing that God that got cursed at the fall. It's like they just picked two random things, work and childbirth. No, they picked the two things that we had been put here to do, work and bear children, and made them something put made it so they can still bear fruit, but now it's through toil and pain. But we do bear fruit and work is still enjoyable. And I think we need to recognize that. Because like I said, my struggles, generally speaking, I really enjoy working. I am hardworking. I had my review on Friday. That is stamped and verified. Um, but it's, it's, we have an innate drive, and there is a pleasure to accomplishing, to seeing something brought forth, to succeeding, to doing good work. There's a pleasure that comes with it, which is why we need to remember the second point. As much as God put us in here to work, he has also from the beginning making it, made it clear that there is a cycle of work and rest. He works six days, he rests on the seventh. God created the week. The cycle of time that is not either tied to something that's naturally occurring, like the rotation of the earth, or um, the cycle of the moon, nor is it a number that's nicely divisible, like 60 or 24. It's seven. What's half a week? Three and a half. It's really annoying if you work uh, with numbers like I do. It's something that was created by God to give order to our life for us. God could have worked, he could have done creation in any number of days. We could have had any number of days in Genesis 1. On the first day, God said, yes, and everything is there, and we would have gone, that made sense. He is a God of infinite resources, and it takes six days. He also wasn't exhausted at the end. He's like, oh, they were gonna get unicorns, but I'm done. We're taking a rest on the seventh day. Mine just spent. No, the cycle was built for us. The Sabbath, the seventh day, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was done and designed for us. We were, this was built to show us there were meant to be cycles of work and rest. Without going through the details of this, I am thrilled that there's been a resurgence in this day of rest. I don't know, it's like the past like three or four years, all of a sudden you see it everywhere, the day of rest. This was something that saved my life 17 years ago? 
I've been here a long time now. Whenever I was coming to the church, I was in grad school. I was working like 90 hours a week between the job I worked and the books I was reading, the classes I was taking, the paper I was reading, and my mental and emotional health was crashing because I was working seven days a week. And I have no idea what prompted it, but I decided I was going to take and be militant about a Sabbath, and that basically saved my sanity. And I have held on to it ever since then. Becca can attest to my occasionally frustrating militancy about not doing work on Sunday. So I am thrilled that it is something that it's being recognized, that we are people who need rest. But we also need to not, as we look to claim and defend that day, which we absolutely should, we cannot miss where it sits in a bigger story. The Sabbath is a funny uh, concept in Scripture. It is a huge deal in the Old Testament. Pretty central. Um, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it works into how God delivers manna. They kill people for it. Um, uh, when Nehemiah is rebuilding the temple all the way through. He's very strict about closing the doors to make sure they are recognizing the Sabbath. It is one of the big issues going through the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and it doesn't get mentioned all that much. Most of the time it gets mentioned, it's mentioned as a day of the week. Like when Paul goes to the temple on the Sabbath to reason with the Jews, as was his custom. Just telling you, he was going on the Sabbath because that was the day of the week he went, because that's when they were there. It's not because it was something outside of that. It's like basically saying on Saturday. That's usually how it shows up. When it shows up outside of that in the, in the Gospels, it shows up around Jesus really irritating people around the Sabbath. The big story about him plucking, his disciples plucking grains, and he gets challenged on it, and he gives an occasionally bewildering defense, and then he says, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So he's some ways turning it on its head. And then he heals on the Sabbath. He seems to make a point of healing on the Sabbath to irk the people who would be bothered by that to such a degree that it's one of the reasons they seek to put him to death. I think in most of the Gospels, the reason they initially set out, when they, they turn it, is because he's healed a guy on the Sabbath. So something shifted. When you get to the epistles, it shows up twice. In all the epistles, it's mentioned twice by name. Once is in Colossians. Paul's talking in Colossians 2 about how we are captive to Christ and not to be captive to Christ, sorry, and not to philosophy, to deceit, or to human traditions. Then he explains why, that it's Christ's victory. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. No one passing judgment on you in regard to the Sabbath is a shift on where the Old Testament was going with that. So what's happened that the Sabbath has been changed? And we need to recognize that as we pursue a Sabbath rest. We get that in the other passage where the Sabbath shows up, which is Hebrews only the, not that chapter, sorry. It's in this section when the author of the Hebrews is making the argument that Jesus is the greater X. He's greater, he's the greater than the angels, he's the greater revelation, he's the greater Moses, he's the greater Joshua, he is the greater. It's when he's talking about Moses and Joshua. Where Moses is faithful in the house, Jesus so much more. He talks about Joshua brought people in 
to the land to give them rest. But then he points out that centuries later, David's writing in the Psalms, and he has God exhort them to, they can enter into a rest. And his argument is, if Joshua gave them rest, why does a rest remain? And that's where he says, actually, how much did I tell you to read? Oh, 4 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. There's a rest that went beyond being brought into land. There's a rest that went beyond Moses delivering people from slavery. There was a greater rest. Where is this rest to be found? Obviously, the argument he's making is it's found in Jesus. As he says, and the thing I can't find, a little bit earlier, that in Christ, we who have believed have entered into that rest. The rest that was promised, the rest that we are looking forward to, the rest that was not found when, Jesus, when Joshua brought them into the land was the rest we have in Christ. We have been brought into the true spiritual rest we need. Now, this is obviously one of those already not yet things. We have been brought into the rest. We are in the rest we have in Christ. By faith, we have been joined in Christ, and in Christ we have rest. We also do not experience the fullness of that rest in this age. We look forward to it coming. It's, but it's no longer just a day. It's a person. Our rest is not a, one day of the week. It is a person in whom we find rest. And that's not to say the day is not important. I think Calvin gets this right. He, point, he says that there's three reasons that God established the Sabbath. One is to point to the spiritual rest. The second is to make a day to give rest to slaves and workers. And the third is to make a time that we can congregate together and hear God's word. One has been fulfilled in Christ. The other two are things that God put in place because of our natural limitations for people. And they still maintain as a principle we should adhere to. That's why Christians just moved the day and they met on Sundays. There was still a day of rest. There was still a traditional, the Lord's Day, when people came together and recognized we need to rest, we need to congregate, hear this word. But it comes within that context that the spiritual rest has been given to us in Christ. We can sit down from our works because he has completed it. And if we don't, if we take the, the day outside of that context, it can just become a life hack something built into the natural cadences of our life that gives us rest and will give us peace for a season, but it doesn't transform who we are and change the nature of our needs the way that entering into the rest we have in Christ does. So as we pursue a day of rest, we need to recognize that we are people, and we pursue, we are people who are supposed to work in cycles of work and rest. We need to do it knowing that we work as a people who have a spiritual rest in Christ. We need to work from a place of rest. Our deliverance and our kingdom are established. Our rest is secured. It's not an open question anymore. Which brings me to the third point. As we work, as we work through this cycle of work and rest, as we work towards God's purposes, 
we need to remember who we work for. And again, it's fun and awkward with Nancy here. This is in Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, in some ways, this verse is a theological landmine, because um, we get to deal with slaves. I, we're not going to take a seven-hour um, detour through slavery in the Bible, um, but I just want to make two points before drawing where I want to go with this, one of which is the question is, does this verse still apply? And the answer is yes, it does. If, we were, if I was to become a slave tomorrow, I would be under the exhortation of Paul to behave in this way because I answer to God. But this is not an endorsement of slavery as a good, uh, a naturally good thing. This is something that's addressing a human institution that already exists and how we can interact within it assuming it exists. It says nothing about the uh, seeking abolition of it. It says nothing about the, that it's a desired state that should continue. And much of the Bible points to its abolition. This verse alone, this section alone, if it had been embraced, if it had been truly embraced that you had to stop threatening and that you had to understand that there is no partiality before God, American slavery would have collapsed. It requires, to look at this and embrace it, requires actually saying that's not a human to do it. And that's nowhere found in scripture either. So we have this as something that is neither here nor there from where I'm going. I just wanted to address that from the passage so I'm not skipping past it. But what I did want to Paul was look at Paul's logic for why the slave is to do what he does. He is to serve his earthly master with fear and trembling. And there's a play on word there because it's your earthly Lord. It's the word that's commonly used for Christ. He's not elevating the masters to Christ, but he's making a loose point there. But he's, because the point is that they are serving as though they are serving Christ. Because they are rendering service with a good will as the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. We work for Christ and we receive from Christ our payment, ultimately. And this is liberating. Because one of the anxieties we have from work is, will I be properly compensated and will I be recognized for the work that I do? And this passage says yes. It also says not yet in some cases. To, to be a slave, almost by definition, is to recognize that you're not going to be properly compensated and recognized for the work you're doing in this age. Paul has to point to another age to make this point. To make this point. And this relates to anxiety. Terry and Matthew 6 made a similar point. We, have, we know that we, are, we have provision here, so we can cease an anxiety here. And in here we know that we will receive proper compensation, 
Not simply provision, proper compensation and recognition in, in God. But both of these, we know, are not necessarily going to be up to the standards we would like in this age. So it requires a belief that Jesus is a great treasure and that what we have in him beyond the veil surpasses anything we miss out on here. This is so helpful at work because there is such a... The question of will I be seen and will I be recognized can absolutely eat away at you while you do your job. And the funny thing is, if you do your job with an eye on will I be seen and will I be recognized, usually you do your job worse. I have multiple people, and I hear about people on other teams at work, who are struggling because they're known as people who do their job for what it gets them. Which is funny because we get people to work because we pay them, but the expectation still is, and that's what you want actually, is you want people to be embracing the work and not really care whether or not they get recognized. Which is hard to do if this is all you're getting is your paycheck here. But if you're actually doing your work knowing that, yes, I didn't get my recognition for that particular project. I can set aside my ego and know that Christ sees the good work and that's the important thing. So we are to work in accordance with the patterns of God and not of this world, which will cause friction and challenges at times. We are to work in a 24-7 world, taking time for rest, and sometimes saying our job is less important than these other things I need to pay attention to. And we are to work as though we are God's labor in a world that is consistently self-promoting we are to know and be comfortable and i'm not saying you can't make it known what you've done but we cannot be a person consumed by that and we cannot we shouldn't let it get into the way that it can to alter our souls so that when it becomes the most important thing doing this in this world is very very challenging which gets to the fourth point we must work from a place of faith Christ and his kingdom must be our ultimate goal. If not, our happiness, our joy in this life will be contingent on the circumstances we endure. When the Bible says rejoice in all things. It is not just being cheeky. It's putting forth something that it means as a sincere instruction with the expectation that we can embrace it. And that doesn't mean there's moments not moments of sorrow. There's moments of deep sorrow and pain. But there is a joy that should undergird everything. A joy we have because we have something that goes beyond our circumstances and the circumstances of this age are but a blink when compared to eternity. This is something that has gotten me through my career. I like my current job, and I'm not just saying that because Nancy's here. I really enjoy my current job. I like my last job, but there were many stretches, which Becca can attest to, at my job two prior to this one, where I was basically just in a moment, points of despair. I was working, feeling like I was just wasting my life doing what I was doing. I was being well paid for it, 
and I was able to provide for a family. We were getting out of debt, but I felt like I was just getting up day in, day out to watch paint dry. And my ability to deal with, and there were, it was a long stretches at time. My ability to deal with that was not based on whether or not my job got interesting or uninteresting on a day by day basis. It was based on how far into the horizon my eyes could see. When they got pulled down to ending at the end of my life, I felt like I was getting robbed every single day because where I was not living out my full dream, I lost another day where it's possible. But when the thing that actually would help me get through it was when the walls went up and I could see beyond the horizon of this life and I recognized the truth that even if I lost every single day from this point on, I had not lost a single day because I still had an infinite number remaining. An infinite number where work will no longer be toil as well. We'll be able to walk in what we're meant to be. And the funny thing was, is because of that, I was able to actually endure what I went through. And again, I was not oppressed. I, I was struggling with the most silly of things in a lot of ways. I was being well paid and angry about it. But I was able to consistently do, to deal with a company that made no sense, the truly crazy CEO, being bounced around, uh, spending weeks doing work just to see it crumble because somebody changed on a whim. And I was able to endure that. And the funny thing is, because of that, I was in a position to not do that. Whereas the temptation was to just stop doing that and go, I don't know, pursue acting or something because finally trying to find my dream there. But it was because, not because I had some wisdom for what would really get me ahead in my career because honestly there's no promise of that. But it was because by God's grace, I could see there was more to life than what I was in. We cannot lose sight of the fact that Paul made tents. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the guy whose travels, missionary travels around in the first century, founded a huge chunk of the church at that time, who wrote, if you go by books, the majority of the New Testament. This is a premier theological mind touched by the Spirit, and he had to pause to make tents to support himself. And he turns this into a cause for joy, something he can boast about, something he finds pleasure in, because it means that he can offer this gospel purely to these people not asking for their support because he can support himself. He's managed to take something that is taking him away from the thing he's called to. Called in a way that I'm not called to, but called, he t this tent making takes him away from it. He turns it into a reason for joy. I am taken away from my dreams by making spreadsheets, and I fall into despair. It's very modern American of me. Paul is a challenging thing on many points, and oftentimes the way he deals with circumstances and sometimes challenges me more than the things he actually says, because he turns tent-making into a cause for rejoicing in Christ. And he does it by faith. 
He does it because he sees a kingdom beyond this one. He knows that God will put him in the place to do the work he needs to do, but that ultimately his place is beside Christ in the new creation. That's where our eyes need to be. Affluence, the cares of this world pull our vision down. They go at the rise and they just slowly sink down until they stop being able to push beyond the edge of this life. And we need to fight to force it back up. It requires faith because what we need to see out there is beyond our, our um, natural vision. As Hebrews 11 puts it, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We need to be assured there is something beyond death in this life. We need to have a conviction that there is a city and a kingdom and a treasure and an eternity that goes far beyond what we could attain here if there was no toil and work and it was perfectly bountiful for our entire lives. That needs to be more concrete to us than the things we have around us. Hebrews 11 goes on to walk through that gallery of faith to give as examples these people who, in their lives, were pursuing something beyond their life. A city they didn't reach, but they saw by faith. And there's one example in these that I think is instructive for us. Moses was born into Egypt. He was born an Israelite at a time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They had gone in under Joseph, free, to dwell there, while Joseph is in power in the Egyptian court. Over the four centuries that follow, they grow in numbers, they become enslaved, and their numbers get so big that they become a threat to Pharaoh who fears that on the next attack in, they'll just join with the enemy and Egypt will be overrun, both from outside and from the inside. So he commands them to be killed, the children. Rather than being killed, Moses is tossed into a river basket. He is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted, which is where he is raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, when May, this is in 11:23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months in his parent, by his parents, because that they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he is, was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses sat in the seats of power. He was wealthy, he was affluent. He had a life established for him apart from his people. And he chose to leave it. 
He didn't leave it because the wealth itself and the power itself was inherently wicked. Joseph, by faith, was taken and raised up from also be, from being a, he almost goes backwards, he goes from being a slave to the second most powerful person in Egypt and then uses that power to do good to both keep Egypt alive but also then to make a place where God can bring Jacob and his sons in to see the Israelite people grow. Moses sits in a different spot. Whereas Joseph was able to use the power to save Moses would have simply been complicit with the oppression and death of his people. He couldn't stay, so he chose. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because he was looking to the reward. Because he endured as seeing him who was invisible. He saw beyond the horizon, and that was more concrete than the, all of the wealth of e Egypt which he could touch. Many of us have the wealth of being sons of Pharaoh's daughters. We live in a ridiculously affluent country, and many of us are affluent by this country's standards. We are the affluent of the affluent. And the question is, can we wield the wealth and power righteously like Joseph, or is there times when we need to step aside and not do things that our work we call us to do, like Moses, because of what we see beyond this? This is not a call for everybody to quit their jobs, just to be clear. I am looking forward to going into work tomorrow. I already have six hours of meetings scheduled, because all I do is talk to people nowadays. I do like talking. But it is a call to recognize that working as the redeemed, if we look at how the work people, the people who are redeemed are to work, that we will occasionally need to make decisions. We can't simply follow the patterns of this world. We need to make sure the purposes of our work are what God intends for work, that we are bringing his order to this creation. We need to make sure that we are resting that we are engaging with our families, that we are giving time to his people. We need to recognize that we work for him and that we are not to be pursuing at any cost our own promotion and position. And doing this can and likely will cost you some of the achievements you can attain in this age. And it might need you, lead you to be in a place where you need to accept a lower rung entirely. And I can't tell you the specifics of that. The world constantly changes, your situation changes. Some of us find ourselves in the position of Joseph one week and Moses three weeks later. Or Moses, and before you even act, it's shifted to Joseph. The question is, how do we hold this? This is not a call to not care. We are not called to be Stoics, indifferent to the affairs of this world. The challenge we have in Christianity is we are called to love this world. We're called to love, we're called to embrace this life that we have, yet hold it lightly. We hold something here that's temporary, looking towards something that's concrete and eternal.
We want to see our children flourish. We want to see flourish in our jobs. We want to be with the ones we love, doing the things that we love. We want to be fulfilling that vision and dream and calling we have for our lives. And those are good desires, but we need to hold them lightly, knowing that they work themselves out sometimes in funny ways. You need wisdom and clarity to make the decisions on a day-by-day basis, but the only way you can make it is if the city beyond this age is more concrete than the one you have here. It requires faith. So the question is, which city is our home? Are we more intent with being able to walk into a bigger room in this city with a spotlight upon us and more wealth? Or is it more important to us to seek this, to find ourselves hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, as we enter into a city built by God whose foundations cannot be shaken and will stand forever? Are we more impressed by this I mean, truly stunning city and age with many wonderful things in it than we are by the wealth that awaits us and does not rust or corrode? How you work, how you rest, how anxious you are is greatly determined by how you answer those questions. If this is all there is, the right thing to do is to work a certain way. But if this is simply a foretaste to what is to come, and that is the more important thing, the, uh, the choices differ. differ. And we need to constantly remind ourselves where we're supposed to be going. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you are most likely not going to, if you just go out into your day, hear constant preaching about the importance of the eternal standing city. When you turn the radio on, you're going to push this way. When you go to work, you'll get pushed this way. When you come home and you watch TV, you're slowly getting pushed this way. No one in this age drifts that way. No one drifts towards an eternal city. It is something that must be pursued. It's something that must be pursued at cost. Not because we earn it, but because we have to leave behind things we have here that would entangle us from walking and running towards it. And we have to consistently preach to ourselves. We have to come and join with each other and remind each other where our home is on a consistent basis because everything else will slowly push this way. We have to set our course on the grand city on the horizon and walk that path. That is what sets the way we work. With that in front of us, we need to remember the purpose of our works. We need to remember that we are a people already at rest. We need to remember who we work for. 
And we need to remember that true goal in life. Amen.